volcanic tea, Filipino ice cream, and Korean-Russian-Uzbeki fusion cuisine. This week, it's Alex Mayazi, editor of Gastro Obscura. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. One of the things I like to do on the podcast is shine a spotlight on unusual and popular local foods, stuff that you might not know about but are extremely popular when you go to visit a certain place. Like the Huitlacoche in Mexico. It's a corn fungus that's a delicacy south of the border. Or coffee milk, a drink that's an obsession for people who live in Rhode Island. One of the tools I use to research these foods is Gastro Obscura, an online resource that's an arm of Atlas Obscura. So I reached out to Alex Mayazi. Alex is the editor of Gastro Obscura, and he agreed to do an interview. Now, before we start, let me say that when I interviewed Alex, he was in his office in Brooklyn, New York, and you'll hear people coming and going as is normal in a busy office. So I wanted to acknowledge that before we start. I don't think it diminishes the interview any, but I did want to mention it. So let's talk to Alex Mayazi. Alex, besides being an editor for Gastro Obscura, he's also written for The Washington Post and Priceonomics, and his work has appeared in The Atlantic. Alex, welcome to Destination Eat Drink. Thank you so much. Alex, for those who aren't familiar with Gastro Obscura and Atlas Obscura, why don't you explain exactly what they are? Sure. So Atlas Obscura is... Uh, we like to say the definitive guide to the world's hidden wonders. So it's a travel publication that is really great for people who want to learn when they travel, who want to have wondrous experiences, um, who want to travel off the beaten track. And so we launched Gastro Obscura, our, our food section, about two years ago. And, you know, the reason that we decided to really focus on food is just because as I you know, think so many people have experienced, food is such a key part of travel and experiencing the world. I think probably all of us have had that experience of coming back from uh, a trip, whether that's to the other side of the world or maybe even just your, your grandmother's house. And the first thing you report back on is, you know, what you ate and what you drank. You know, you were you know, you say, oh, you know, 12 hours ago, I was on the beach with a mojito in hand in Cuba or, or what have you. Um, that's the reason that the Gastro Obscura exists is to celebrate uh, wondrous foods and to learn about places around the world uh, through their food and drink. When we were first talking, Alex, I told you that when I travel, one of the first things I do before I book a trip is I pull up Atlas Obscura and Gastro Obscura and look up what are some of the cool places to go, but also what are some of the cool foods. We went to Sicily, and this is where I found out about the St. Agatha breast cakes, which celebrate the uh, martyred St. Agatha in Sicily. And I would, have, I would not have known about this had I not gone to Gastro Obscura, and that's why I really 
talk about Gastro Obscura and say people should go there and find out about these things? Yes, people should listen to you, Brent. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, those, you, you know, the St. Ag Agatha's Breasts, you know, which is this, uh, you know, pastry that honors a saint's uh, noteworthy body part, um, you know, it comes out of this, uh, you know, rich tradition of uh, monks and nuns and people dedicated to religious orders making food and drink, which is you know, something of a minor obsession of ours. And we've, you know, created a map of some of these kind of monastery foods around the world. And it's always been interesting to think about uh, why are there so many food and drinks made by monks and nuns? And it seems like they have kind of, you know, the culture has come back to them in terms of the, the foods they make, right? Where I think there was, there was a time when, um, you know, food coming out of cans and tubes was really exciting and imbued with the promise of science and the idea that we could uh, have our cake and eat it too. And, and food science could achieve all these amazing things. And, and now the pendulum has kind of swung back. And of course, now we're all interested in things that are uh, local and made by hand and have uh, decades, if not centuries of tradition to them and uh, that have kind of a, a slow feel to them. And so, of course, for, you know, monks and nuns, where, where often their cooking and baking is this kind of meditative act, um, I think that's, that's now a story that has a lot of appeal to people. Um, and, you know, there are lots of, uh, you know, town squares, uh, festivals around the world where, you know, if you want that certain type of jam made by these Spanish nuns, you better mark your calendar and, and get there early. You know, you, you mentioned kind of the space age foods of of the uh, last century. When I was growing up, when I was a little kid, one of the things that I always used to beg my mom to buy was Tang because on television they advertised it's what the astronauts drink. And now you're talking about going back to the generations prior to that, prior to science uh, being involved with our food production system. But you bring up a really interesting point, which is the monks and the nuns. And I think when we think of monks, we think often of beer in uh, monks in Belgium and places like that. But talk about some of the specific uh, monk and or nun foods or drinks that people can uh, try. So I think the one that I, or one that I particularly want to try is a ube jam made by, uh, made in the Philippines, um, by religious order there, um, at an abbey, um, if I'm remembering correctly, um, or a convent. Uh, so ube is, you know, often referred to as like a purple yam. It's probably best known, um, in ice cream form. So if you've ever traveled to the Philippines, you've maybe tried a, a hollow hollow, um, this really fun dessert with a huge array of ingredients. Um, and kind of an endless possibility in terms of the variety of ingredients you get or the specific mix, but there's often a, a scoop of ube ice cream on top. So that's one that I would love to try. You know, you can think too of some of these kind of cuisines where, say, in Korea, um, members of religious orders are going foraging for ingredients and then making kind of simple meals. Um, and it's a kind of monastery cuisine. India just has a dazzling number of, you know, religious orders involved in making food or drink that are often parts of festivals or part of uh, offerings for spirits or gods. 
so it's a really, yeah, I think the, the association I've most had is with, you know, monks making beer or alcohol or, or pastries. Um, here closer to me in New York, there's some nuns who I'm told make a mean cheesecake uh, in New York State. Um, but yeah, there's, there's quite, quite a variety out there. Excellent. If anyone knows of amazing examples that uh, are not to be found on Gastro Obscura, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. The, the monastery food map can always be updated. That brings up a good point, Alex, because there's a lot of crowdsourcing that goes on with Atlas Obscura and Gastro Obscura. Talk about how people can add things into your database and how you guys review it and whatnot. Sure. So Atlas Obscura began as an atlas, um, not an atlas of famous places, but an atlas of these obscure, wondrous, and overlooked places around the world. So uh, an example we like to give is that in Atlas Obscura, uh, you won't find the Eiffel Tower, but you will find a secret apartment that Gustav Eiffel built into the Eiffel Tower where he would entertain guests and have a grand old time. And so, you know, our atlas has, at least, you know, well over 10,000 amazing places from all over the world in it now. Um, and that is not something, you know, we could do ourselves. That is because people from all over the world, this, this community that we've been, you know, building and lucky to, to, to find um, or have come to us um, of, you know, adventurous people, people who love traveling, people who are curious, have told us about amazing things all over the world. When they've gone on trips, they've added amazing places they found to the Atlas um, or just things around the corner from them. Uh, you know, we're, we're big believers that there's something amazing just around the corner that's a bit overlooked. Um, and so when we started Gastroscura, we, we wanted to do the same thing with a database of food and drink. And so, you know, with our food and drink database, I think we're really looking for um, foods that reveal something hidden or extraordinary about the place where it's made. So, you know, I, I like one example we like is of this um, violet volcanic tea. Um, so in the uh, Azores, an island um, still governed by Portugal, green tea, when mixed with the volcanic spring water there, you get this bright violet tea. Um, so that's an example of, you know, right, that's, that's kind of a food that tells you something amazing about the place. So I think, likewise, we really need people's help to produce this definitive guide um, of the world's most amazing food and drink and, and these foods that tell you about the places uh, you're visiting or the places or about people's hometowns. And so if you go uh, on our website, um, you can find, you know, there's a section so that you can add a food or add a place. Um, you can add a place to the Atlas. You can add a food to our food and drink database. Um, and, you know, there are instructions there about, about what we're looking for. But, yeah, we're really, you know, looking for foods and drinks that, that tell us something really fascinating about, you know, towns or cities or regions. We've had some fantastic um, entries that have come from our community. I think one of my favorites with the food and drink database is um, the Persian ice cream sandwich, which um, I've been very much looking forward to try and, and have a plan to do that in, in several weeks as it will be part of a kind of food tour we do in, uh, we're going to be doing in New York City where you, um, an itinerary where you can taste amazing food around the world uh, right here in New York City thanks to, you know, all these immigrant populations we have. There's a Persian ice cream sandwich in New York? It can be found. <laughs> um, 
And I I can't wait to hear more about this when when you when you try it. I will, I will give a full report. I think I've been signed up by uh, some folks on staff here to do our entire itinerary um, all around all five boroughs of New York City in one day and um, reporting as I go. So um, I think I'll be very glad when I get to sit down with a Persian ice cream sandwich. And I think, you know, should have flavors of saffron and rose water and, and be a treat. And then I'll be back on my bike and trying to seek out something new. You mentioned the volcanic tea of the Azores. And I always say that nothing um, exposes a culture, nothing reveals a culture more than its food. And I think that's a great example of the um, of the of the tea in the Azores, because you couldn't get that anywhere else because of the volcanic minerality in the water that they use to make the tea. So it's really, you know, we talk about food and it's fun to go and try it, but it also talks to the culture itself when you're, when you're talking about specific foods from a specific place. Food culture has become so elevated um, that I think we're all kind of familiar with the idea or, or the trope of kind of like eating your way through a country. Um, and people should do that. That's fun. But I, I do think, you know, uh, we want to help people be more thoughtful about it or, or get a bit deeper. I think, you know, um, eating lots of tacos in Mexico sounds uh, like a good idea. Um, but I think and, and, you know, we'd like to also help people find some of the most amazing places to to go try tacos where you will kind of be in this, uh, you know, longstanding institution or a place with amazing historical story. But yeah, I think what we're really trying to do is put the spotlight on these really interesting traditions or foods that are in danger of disappearing or foods like the tea, as you said, where it's really, it's hyper local cause you just couldn't make it anywhere else. Um, and I think our hope is that these are really a way where people, can learn more through food since learning through food is always a, a really fascinating and approachable way. Um, and I think, you know, with, with this database and especially as, um, readers help us fill it out and fill it with really fascinating foods and drinks, um, and ones that reveal extraordinary stories about, about these places around the world, um, that, that, that can help people kind of go deeper in terms of, having um, more interesting, unique experiences and, and ones that really reveal something about the, the places they're visiting. We're talking to Alex Meyazi. He is the editor of Gastro Obscura. Alex, you mentioned that you're in Brooklyn. What are some of your favorite places in Brooklyn for food? One of my favorite things to do, I always like when I can combine my my love of uh, biking or hiking with, with food or drink. Um, so one of my favorite things to do is I'll go on this, uh, bike ride by the water that I very much enjoy. And on my way back, when I'm getting close to the end, I'll stop at a restaurant near Coney Island that has several names. One is Eddie's fancy food. Another is cafe at your mother-in-law. <laughs> I believe there's a third that's not coming to mind right now. Um, which I apologize about. Um, but it's this Korean Russian Uzbek restaurant. Um, it's a pretty hard to find obscure cuisine that's served there. It's called Koryo Saram food. And the Koryo Saram, they have this really interesting and tragic backstory um, where the Koryo Saram were, if we go back to kind of the early 1900s, 
they were a group of ethnic Koreans living on the Russian side of the Russia-Korea border. As World War II approached, Stalin and Soviet leadership, uh, due to a combination of probably paranoia and racism, were worried that um, the Koryosaram would be unreliable um, in the case of a war, that you know they, they could not be trusted, um, despite the fact that they'd really made lives for themselves in Russia and, and been part of the country. And so, you know, with, with no warning and in quite traumatic fashion, um, all of these people were moved uh, forcibly from, you know, where they live near the Korean border to parts of Central Asia, uh, you know, then part of then what was kind of the frontier or less populated areas of the Soviet Union, uh, but are, you know, now part of Uzbekistan and, and other Central Asian countries. The move in trying to create new lives was a very traumatic experience. You know, decades later, you have this um, fusion food, essentially, combining Korean Russian, Uzbek in really uh, interesting, unique ways. And so there is a Koryosaram restaurant in, in Brooklyn near Coney Island uh, with three names, as previously discussed. Um, and so I've, you know, really enjoyed being able to go out by the water and then go visit this restaurant um, and have a meal there. And it's, you know, certainly it's not, uh, it's not a fancy restaurant, but it's, the, the food is something really unique and special. And uh, there's there's always this kind of, I think when, when Atlas Obscura is at its uh, best in terms of pointing people to experiences in the real world, um, all of us have kind of experienced that, uh, a very particular feeling, a bit of a, a thrill of discovery, but also a, a sense that you're tapping into something deep there. Um, and, and certainly I, I enjoyed getting that feeling when, when I visited. What kind of dishes would you expect to find at a Russian, Korean, Uzbek restaurant like this at Coney Island? Yeah, it's a little bit hard to sum up because, you know, I, I mean, I think, you know, maybe it's the fusion of one food with Mexicans. So that means you end up with, you know, a, a sushi taco. But, you know, this is a, a fusion food that was not kind of invented in a, a year or two by people having fun combining things, by chefs being creative. But by chefs being creative over decades um, due to, you know, one group of people being moved to, to another place. You'll have something that really feels a lot like kimchi, but it's, you know, it, it has some different flavor to it. Um, it's a little bit cooler. You know, you'll have the dishes will kind of range and how, you know, some feel quite Russian in terms of maybe a peel off with, with meat. And it feels quite, you know, of that region and you don't see as much of the, um, the Korean influence, um, or you'll feel, you know, just kind of, uh, get a, a dash of Korean spices and, and dishes that are otherwise very much, uh, Russian or central Asian. Um, so, you know, it definitely feels different compared to the kind of, you know, sushi taco or sushi burrito or, or kind of the, the fusion foods that are more, you know, recent inventions, um, and, and more from chefs being playful and combining, um, different cuisines. And maybe more of a forced fusion, some of these things you're talking about, like sushi tacos and whatnot. This is this is from the actual culture itself, because these folks were forcibly relocated from one place to another. And when you think about it, you know, the Russian, Uzbek, Korean fusion, it might sound to American ears as incredibly exotic. And maybe it is a bit of an outlier. But the fact of the matter is that these fusions 
happen in our cuisine every day and we don't think about it. For example, when we have immigrants coming to this country, just think of Italian American food. Um, you go to Italy, you're not going to get a pepperoni pizza or spaghetti with meatballs per se, but those are considered Italian dishes in the U.S., but they've become something else with the influx of Italian immigrants. And I think that goes on everywhere around the world and especially here in the U.S. I think that's endlessly fascinating. And one of my, my favorite examples is a food historian named Rachel Lodon, if I'm, I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, has, has written about and, and citing others, is, is, you know, citing others as well on this, but has talked about, you know, almost cheaply attributing pizza to Argentina rather than to Italy um, and tracing this history of how, you know, if you look at what pizza was like in Italy, originally it wasn't much to write home about. Um, but then in Argentina, where you have just a huge Ital amount of Italian immigration, a huge population of Italian immigrants or people of Italian descent, that's where you really get pizza culture. And then it goes back to Italy. And, you know, now it's sure, you know, pizza was there in Italy and, you know, but like pizza was transformed um, by Argentinians. So I, I think, you know, there are myriad examples of that that get really fun to trace. And I think, uh, you know, we shouldn't still be surprised there are so many examples, but it's always surprising to learn of yet another food that has a more uh, complicated or interesting backstory than you realize often that, like you said, kind of element of like, oh yeah, you, that Italian food is not, you will not find that in Italy. Right. Uh, Italians will not a huge amount of idea of what you're talking about. Pizza is a great example because I always say, yeah, pizza is Italian, but tomatoes came from the New World. Basil came from Central Asia. Cheese most certainly didn't come from Italy, but the Italians found a way to meld this together into something special. I'm looking forward to doing that research that you were talking about with that food historian because I would love to learn more about the history of Argentinian pizza. That sounds fascinating. I only think of Italians going to Argentina, not pizza going from Argentina to Italy. That's a, that's a fascinating thing that I'm going to have to look at a little bit more. Yeah, I should probably note since I feel like uh, there seems to be a, a certain amount of pride among Italians in their food that, uh, you know, all complaints <laughs> should be directed to the people I cited rather, rather than to me. You have to be careful. You have to be very careful when you tread in this, in this area. So let's go to something completely different. My vision is that working for a place like Gastro Obscura, you travel quite a bit. Have you been anywhere interesting lately? I always feel a bit bad that I do have to break a bit of a romantic spell when people ask if I'm constantly traveling and trying new foods. Um, cause it is the case that as the editor of Gastro Obscura, I'm usually in the office working with my team and, you know, when we're publishing stories that take place on the other side of the globe, it's usually that I'm in the office receiving, uh, drafts from the people who live in those places, the, the freelancers who are filing those stories to us. Um, and so I get to enjoy learning about the reporting they did there and, and, uh, history of those areas, but I am. I am in Brooklyn and I get up and go to the microwave to, you know, microwave some Trader Joe's frozen burritos for lunch. <laughs> so, you know, uh, we, we have to spin the romance of the job in other ways, I suppose. But, it, you know, it's certainly the case that uh, I've gotten to, I've been lucky to go on some great travels. And so um, Atlas Obscura, we actually run trips all over the world. We run, I mean, trips to every continent 
let me make sure for a second that's accurate. Pretty sure that's accurate. Um, trips of different themes. There are photography trips. There are trips focused on the natural world. And of course, there are culinary trips. You know, I went to Mongolia, which um, was an amazing experience. And I, I think as much as I've been lucky to be able to travel, often the question about uh, food or drink that comes up with Mongolia is if I've tried fermented mare's milk, which I think is probably what it is uh, most famous for. Yes. Um, which I did get to enjoy. I liked it. It's it's a new enough taste that you have to get used to it. And I think since it also had, I was cautioned about its laxative effect, I was not able to have quite enough in my short trip to uh, fully develop a taste. Um, it definitely is unfamiliar to a lot of people. And, and I very much enjoyed that when, you know, we had a group of travelers that was mainly from the US, a few from Europe, a few from Australia. And so it was new for everyone. And as um, folks on the trip, the travelers were trying it. Most people were like, oh, you know, kind of glad to try, but it's, you know, not my favorite. Um, and then and then one woman named Susan, you know, kind of lifted up her lips and tried it. And she said, oh, it's good. It tastes like kombucha. <laughs> and I just kind of thought right on Susan. And yeah, I really, I really wish I could have, you know, smuggled some home for the rest of the gastroobscura team to try. But uh, given that customs can can get on your case about an, a stray apple, I was a bit worried about what happens would happen if I if I showed up was caught with fermented mare's milk. Right. Uh, they would they'd have no idea what it was anyway, Alex. So you might have gotten through. True. Fair enough. But it, it's uh, I mean favorite way for it to be served often and doled out is, is in like Coca-Cola bottles. So it would have been an interesting experience explaining the weight milk like substance in a, a Pepsi Cola or Coca-Cola bottle. Right. Um, and of course the most recent travel I did was, um, to San Francisco and that actually was not, uh, a food trip, but I was, uh, working on an itinerary that'll come out in a few weeks. Um, and so something we've, we've been doing is, you know, we don't want people to always have to, I mean, we hope people can go to far away remote places, um, to travel. Um, but we also, again, big believers that, uh, adventure and hidden overlook things are right around the corner. So we've been publishing a number of itineraries at Atlas Obscura that are focused on places that are heavily touristed, but we, we show you hidden overlook parts of them. Um, so Times Square in New York or, um, Coachella Valley, which is best known for a music festival, but it's a really fascinating place. Um, and so I lived for four years in, in Haight-Hashbury, where the summer of love happened in San Francisco. Um, and so our kind of guide to, you know, hidden and overlooked parts of Haight-Hashbury will be coming out in a few weeks. Give us a give us a preview. What's a really cool place in Haight-Hashbury that we might want to go to? Yeah, I mean, I think this was like speaking about the, the romance where like I'm not every day trying amazing obscure foods. This couple of days of recording was like what people imagine working at Atlas Obscura is like. Um, so, you know, first I, or not first, but, you know, one place I went to was, um, a museum completely devoted to concert posters, um, especially focused on concert posters from the sixties and seventies, these like psychedelic rock posters. Um, and it's, you know, museum, you need to like ring the door to be able to be let in. It's a small space, but has this, ama this amazing collection, um, that in some ways is kind of an act of karmic retribution because so many people wrote who created these psychedelic rock posters in the sixties and seventies and were kind of paid 50 bucks or a couple hundred bucks or what have you, but, but no copyright. And so then when all these rock bands went on to huge fame, the, you know, uh, in San Francisco's rent skyrocketed, you know, the, the people making these posters were kind of didn't, didn't take that ride. Um, so now there's this museum celebrating it with a, a place where modern, um, artists can, can keep making those, those posters, um, in San Francisco in a, a shop or a factory upstairs. You know, I went to uh, a park 
uh, Buena Vista Park, which is um, uh, on the east part of Haight-Ashbury. And there I was looking for um, the city in something like 19, uh, early 1900s, the city was running out of space. So they disinterred a bunch of cemeteries, moved all the cemeteries, almost all the cemeteries out of city grounds, relocated them. Um, so all the unclaimed tombstones were turned into building material. And so if you look closely, you can see that some of the marble used um, on the paths of Buena Vista Park, you can still see the inscriptions from gravestones on there. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Before we let you go, Alex, you wrote The Science of Snobbery. Um, And, you know, in it, you talk about things like how so-called wine experts can be fooled into believing a cheap wine is really a very expensive wine or how they can be tricked into believing that a white wine is actually a red wine by adding some food dye to it. Talk about this science of snobbery. And at the end of the day, is all we're talking about the difference between these expensive items just marketing? I will talk about this all day, Brent. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. We got the time. First got interested in it because I was once found myself at the home of a, I don't think he was a billionaire, but he had plenty of money. And he told me, you know, he, he took us for a little tour of his wine cellar and he said, you know, uh, if you can spend a lot of money on wine and, and stock a big wine cellar, then you get to drink for free because all the bottles go up in price. So you can just drink the difference. Okay. I found that interesting. And so I wanted to learn more about, you know, the, the price of wine and learned all, I ended up learning about all these people who, you know, create investments based on, you know, investing in, in really nice bottles of wine, you know, the, um, you know, Chateau Lafitte's of the world. And as I did that, I started coming across these kind of studies you were, you were talking about, you know, the ones that show that, you know, students in a program where they are studying wine and tasting notes and being prepared to go into the industry, you know, they can be tricked just by red food dye. Uh, you have red food, you know, give them two glasses of identical white wine, but one has red food dye. They'll describe the white wine with classic white wine adjectives, the red, the seemingly red one with classic red wine adjectives. You know, sure, those are students, but even if you look at, um, you know, you do a statistical analysis of professional wine tastings and judgings, um, you'll see that the ribbons that are given out, the awards that are given out, the scores and ratings that are given out to these wines at the highest level, um, you have the judges blindly rank these wines multiple times and you can see it's their, their rankings are basically statistically random. Um, they may as well have just rolled a dice to, to rate all of these wines given the, the level, the lack of consistency between their ratings. And so this, I didn't know what to do with this because I feel like on one side there are people, you know, people have strong reactions to wine and especially wine snobs and, wine prices, I think just because of the way that wine is so often used to almost police class lines. Um, so, you know, I think some people learn about this and they're like, great, I knew it was all a scam. It, you know, the expensive <laughs> test stuff doesn't taste any better. It's all just grape juice. Um, and then the other side, you kind of have these wine professionals and they kind of shrug off these studies or these experiments and they say, oh, well, you know, we all know you can't rate everything precisely from zero to 100 or 80 to 100. And, you know, we just like, learning about wine and everyone has different preferences. And, you know, I find both of these answers extremely unsatisfying. Um, you know, you cannot just, you know, you, you can't say that, yes, some wine is worth thousands of dollars and other wine is only worth a couple dollars and then shrug off all signs that no one can tell the difference without any cues. 
um, as saying subjective preferences. And, you know, on the other hand, do I really think there's no difference between wine? Um, do I really feel like I can have, you know, two buck chuck is just as good as everything else? Like, no, no, I don't. Um, so like, where's my middle ground? Like, what do I make of this? And, you know, I, I think as I started kind of trying to, you know, find my way in the darkness, one of the things I started thinking about more is how these kind of experiments done to wine that seem so damning, so crazy, you can do them with kind of any food or drink. You know, you put a piece of chicken on a nicer plate, people will think it's better. Um, just the same way that if you put cheap wine and expensive wine, an expensive wine bottle, people will think it's better. I'm not sure if it's still around, but there was a restaurant chain called, or kind of concept restaurant called Dom Le Noir in the dark in France. And the idea was that all the waiters were blind and you go in, it's pitch black, you're guided to your seat, you're kind of shown where your fork and knife and everything is, and you have a meal and you don't know the menu. Um, and, you know, I had two friends go and they said, you know, I was trying to, I was like, what is this? What is this? And then I was like, oh, some, you know, they told me like it was a strawberry. You know, you cannot identify basic flavors. Um, so just the same way you put that red food dye in the white wine and people are tricked. You know, that's, that's going to be true with kind of everything. It works outside food. You know, when people first designed this, this new type of office chair that was all based on ergonomic uh, principles and they asked people to try it, people didn't think it was comfortable because their image of a comfortable chair had big cushions. It was a giant armchair. So how could this kind of exoskeleton of a chair be comfortable if it wasn't cushioned, even though now it's a very expensive chair because it's been well-designed on ergonomic principles? So on one hand, I feel like I've kind of got a handle on this, right? I, I understand the principles at work, that people are easily tricked or misled by context cues, and we really rely on those. But on the other hand, I have no idea what to do with this knowledge. You know, what does that mean that like it, it kind of like robs a lot of meaning from the world in a way I don't know what to do with, you know, the fact that we can be so easily tricked and it extends even to, to experts. Um, like, I don't know, do I hire someone to, to buy cheap food and drink and, and repackage it in more attractive labels all the time because it doesn't matter? Um, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know what to do with this information. And I don't, I don't think anyone else does. I don't know why more people haven't tried to like, figure this out. I'm always just baffled. It feels like everyone's just in the two camps of, you know, oh, you know, the winos just kind of trying to shake it off and the, the people who hate the wine snobs, um, you know, yelling about it. And I'm just in the middle trying to figure out, you know, what, what do we make of this? And why aren't there more people in the middle here with me? You're, you're the guy in the middle going, everyone be cool. Yeah. I mean, not even that. I'm kind of fine for people to freak out, but I want us to like talk about it and not just, just kind of use it to like, you know, not just assume our preconceptions are right. Like, what does this mean? Like, how does it change? Uh, does it change how we should live? I don't know. Well, it's a, yeah. Let's uh, talk all day about wine prices. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's it's certainly interesting. And I would just say, I, I don't know that you've convinced me that I'm going to drink Yellowtail exclusively, but I've found traveling. You know, you can you can go to regions, certain wine producing areas that are less well known than others. And you can have a fine glass of wine. This has been my experience. You can have a very fine glass of wine and the bottle cost, I don't know, when we were in Puglia, $5 for a, for a great bottle of wine that's made with the same kind of grapes and, you know, as these other expensive regions. So I'm, I'm with you. I don't understand. But I would say this one thing, which is 
sure, it's fun to go to a Michelin-starred restaurant where you've got all this, you know, fancy fancy waiters serving you fancy food with fancy sauces and ingredients and, you know, uh, gastromolecular biology and all this stuff. But for me, nothing is better than going to a family restaurant in maybe not the best part of town where they're just serving simple food, simple ingredients prepared simply so that you can enjoy the ingredients rather than all the fluff and fancy stuff that goes with it. Yeah. And I think if there's some, you know, I still don't know what to do about all this, everything I learned when I went down this rabbit hole of wine prices. And, you know, clearly there's some marketing element to it. Everyone's sure about that. But it's, you know, I think if there is some takeaway, it's realizing how much power there is to things like ritual or the importance you attach to the food or having a sense that it is special, how much that almost literally changes your taste. (laughs) Um, That it's just, you know, the kind of what you bring when you sit down imbues the food in a way. And so I do think, you, you know, you alluded to this kind of celebration of simple food and home cooking. And I'd hope what gastro can add to that is that we can see something really special, not just in super fancy food that's being celebrated for because it's high end and creative chefs um, in almost fine art and, and not just the kind of uh, sim- like appreciation of home cooking. But there's also this sense that we can um, <clears throat> we can sit down at the table and we can know about how this food is incredibly unique to this one region. We can know how there's this whole story behind it. And that, I think, gives the whole experience this kind of, uh, it elevates it in a way that's really fascinating and human and that doesn't have anything to do with price tags, but more about looking at the world a certain way, um, looking at the world with a sense of curiosity and wonder. Um, and so, you know, what, what we're all trying to do here is, is help people eat adventurously to experience wonder and, and find ways to have these kinds of experiences and, and live their life, their life in a way that's um, more full of wonder. And uh, I, I hope that that's something you kind of can bring um, to more of your eating experiences and, and make them really amazing and wondrous and, and learn about the world and people serving them and making them. Alex, I think that puts a perfect bow on our conversation here. Um, thank you so much for being here on the program. Tell people what your website is. You, you've done extensive writing on, we talk about food, about the economics of food, the economics of a lot of things. I've read a bunch of your stuff. Uh, what's your website address? Sure. So for um, Alice Obscura and Gastro Obscura, you can look for aliceobscura.com um, and you'll, you'll see Gastro Obscura on there. And then for me personally, you can find me on Twitter at, at amayasi. Um, it's A-M-A-Y-Y-A-S-I. Um, or look for my website, alexmayasi.com. Alex Mayasi, thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink, and we'll look forward to seeing you down the road. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Okay, there you go. That's the episode, and that's the reason why I love doing this podcast. I never thought in a million years about the possibility of Korean, Russian, Uzbeki fusion cuisine, but Alex has me craving some right now.
Maybe I'll wash it down with some of that volcanic tea from the Azores he was talking about. Thanks to Alex Meyazi for appearing on the show. And if you want Destination Eat Drink delivered directly to your phone, tablet, or computer, subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, or at radiomisfits.com. Or go to destinationeatdrink.com. Click on the podcast tab, and that'll link you right to the podcast. Thanks, Ed Silla. He distributes the show. And check out Destination Eat Drink next week. We'll be talking to Emmy Award-winning TV personality Kat Neville about her show, Tastemakers. Until then, I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.